Hello, everyone. This is the Pacific War Channel, and I'm joined here today by my friend and the host of the Cold War Channel, Dave. How are you? I'm good, Greg. How are you? Very good. And I think this has been a long time coming. I've been really eager to do this one with you because I think of all the channels, especially even under the KNG umbrella, as we would say, we have the most in common. Because, yeah, the Pacific War and the yeah. Cold War, they go hand in hand, I find. I think that's well, like like a lot of things. Like there's a there's a there's a nice progression that uh, where the 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 Second World War ends, and obviously with the, the Pacific War ending, and so many of the stories of the early Cold War pick up directly from the end of the Second World War, even even prior to that. Like there's how many episodes have we started with? Well, the roots of this go back to the end of the Second World War. So that's no, this yeah. is. Uh, this is definitely, I've been looking forward to this for a while. So glad to definitely. be here. I actually, I forget who, who had the quote, but somebody actually said that he considered the two atomic bombs at the end of the Pacific War to be the first shots of the Cold War. I always found that an enduring quote. Yeah, the, 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 there's, a, there's an enduring debate within Cold War studies of when, when does the Cold War actually start? And I mean, you can... I'm sure the comment section will people will have their own opinions yeah. and some will go back to as far as early as 1917 and lots of people want to bring it up to there's an argument to be made that it could be the Korean War as late as 1950. Um, there's all kinds of dates all in between but uh, certainly there's a, a, a very valid argument from uh, from August of 1945 as well so definitely. Hey everyone, I just wanted to let you know I now have a Patreon account found at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War channel. Over there you can find exclusive Patreon episodes and podcasts based on suggestions from patrons, and other benefits like early access to all of my content, live hangouts, your name in the end credits, and much, much more. So please go check it out. And uh, I'm not too sure exactly yet what this will be titled as, but it would probably be something along the lines as uh, well, the firebombing campaign against Japan and how it evolved into the Cold War. In a lot of ways, they really do have a lot to play with each other, especially when it comes to uh, well, the infamous, infamous Curtis LeMay. <laughs> Curtis LeMay being, um, I'm going to call him a, a hobby of mine. He's, uh, he's a character I was introduced to a number of years ago and is really... Not always in a particularly good way, but he certainly captured the captures the imagination, um, of and epitomizes a lot of what some people view as a really good thing about uh, about uh, American power um, and that and strength um, through the the war period in the cold in the early Cold War, and other people look at as morally morally reprehensible. I guess yeah. it might be a good yeah. word, but that's I'm sure we can get into that as we go forward here. He's both pushed up heroically and reviled at the same time yeah 100 percent. that's uh my conclusion on him and we can come back around to this obviously but he was the uh he was the right man in the right place at the right time definitely for a strategy that had zero margin of error <laughs> yeah that's a good way to put it as my, uh, I actually, I had a professor in one of my first years at uh, well, uh, University of Concordia. He taught a, an actual course on the Pacific War, which was really nice. It was rare to have some, an opportunity like that. And he dedicated a large portion just to Curtis LeMay's rationale for um, yeah. why it was necessary, I guess you would say. But uh, just to begin, because I'm, I'm assuming that the audience 
maybe knows about the firebombing of the Japanese home islands, but maybe they don't know the specifics or why it occurred in the first place. So I thought a, a good place to start this podcast would just be to, well, explain the firebombing campaign. So I might take you hostage for just a little bit. I'll try and make it as quick as possible. Appreciate that. So um, I think, well, I don't know about you. There's a lot of people who are interested in the Pacific War, just World War II, you know, in a nutshell. They're really interested in the technology, particularly the aircraft. So a lot of people would be familiar with the B-17 Flying Fortress, which, you know, made its, uh, I guess you could say, made its real debut at the beginning of the war. And it was used for a, a long part of the war. But it was a little bit... It wasn't able to do some things that they wanted to do in the Pacific compared to that in Europe. So it couldn't really make the round trip uh, to hit the Japanese home islands, for example, um, unless Doolittle wanted to make another raid, I guess. But uh, from bases in China, they it wasn't really a possibility. So they knew early on that they actually needed an aircraft that could make the round trip and could support a heavier load. And thus, actually, it goes all the way back to 1938, I believe, when they were starting to design the Super Fortress. The infamous super fortress, I think, is like an icon, an iconic symbol of the Pacific War now. So that's the B-29, uh, which could have made a round trip uh, to hit the Japanese home islands from uh, what would be the Marianas later on. But uh, it could also hit parts of Japan from certain air bases in China. And that's actually where the story kind of begins. So um, as people might be aware, FDR had to make a lot of promises to Chiang Kai-shek throughout the Pacific War because... China wasn't being treated very well at the table. And uh, some of those promises eventually had him bring over B-29s to uh, first India, uh, I think it was in Bengal, and then to China in Chengdu. So Chengdu had a bunch of airfields. And uh, for the most part at the beginning, Bomber Command, which was led by uh, Kenneth Wolfe at the beginning, uh, they were hitting targets within China and uh, also Bangkok uh, of Thailand because they kind of had to neutralize Thailand, even though Thailand was quasi allying themselves to the islands by the end of the war. It's a very, that's another story altogether. It's an interesting one, but Thailand definitely got hit pretty hard. And these were kind of the initial testings of the capabilities of the B-29. Uh, not necessarily with firebombing though, that comes a little bit later, but they were testing out all different kinds of armaments. Uh, the They knew a from the very offset of the war that they wanted to hit the Japanese home islands. And they even had an idea that they wanted to use firebombs because obviously a lot of the Japanese infrastructure is uh, wooden paper. So it was a no brainer. It would have the most devastating effect. And they would be able to hit Kyushu uh, pretty early on. And um, well, the initial targets, and this goes for the entire firebombing campaign and everything, the initial targets were the steelwork factories and what built the aircrafts. They weren't going after the civilian populations per se at the beginning that inevitably happened a bit later. Uh, but fire the firebombing campaign, or just the, the I guess you call it the strategic precision bombing campaign at the beginning, uh, had lackluster results early on. And they did manage to hit some places like uh, Yawada and Kyushu, and they did some damage, but um, it wasn't looking great at the beginning. Uh, they didn't have enough aircraft because every time they wanted to make a, a campaign, basically other sectors in the Pacific would demand to use aircraft, uh, notably Douglas MacArthur. Uh, good old Dougie would ask for B-29s the entire war, demanding the pretty much the entire Air Force be under his command. And yeah, they did have to help him with the Philippines and such. So it would take quite a while until uh, Bomber Command would really get its feet. 
Uh, but Curtis LeMay enters into the story first uh, when they are dealing with this kind of the 20th Bomber Command that's still stuck in India and China, hitting Chinese targets and uh, Thailand and such, and a little bit of Japan. Uh, at the beginning, Curtis LeMay, he's kind of testing things out, and he's not overly successful at the beginning. Um, but he is taking a lot of the experience and knowledge that he had from Europe uh, with the Germans, and he is employing them in the Pacific, um, seeing what works and what doesn't work. Now, here, I want to go through my notes a little bit because I want to make sure I had this all right. During Operation Ichigo, um, which is one of the craziest offensives, the Jap it's like the last haymaker the Japanese tossed at China. Uh, they were going to hit Chengdu and Kuming. Curtis LeMay and uh, well, the aviation general uh, Chanel, not Chanel, that always bothers me. <laughs> my uh, my French language, like his name should be pronounced Chanel, but anyways, he was an American, even though he's a French American, he his family pronounced it Chanel. Uh, they wanted to hit the Japanese uh, logistical capabilities to thwart how much that they could advance into uh, mainland China. And LeMay unleashed the B-29s on places like Hankou, and they were using firebombs at this time, and it devastated uh, the Japanese logistical capabilities. Hankou was burning for three days straight. It was uh, it proved very effective. And this is a, it's at this point where the Americans are also getting closer to the Japanese home islands in the Pacific. So once they, once they had captured the Marianas, now they had a place they could finally send these B-29s to effectively hit anywhere they want in the home islands, uh, particularly they want to hit Tokyo. So Curtis LeMay then moves over to the Marianas where he's taking over uh, another bomber command, it's uh, 21. And now he gets to really play with stuff. <laughs> now it's at this point, we actually get uh, a lot of these operations that uh, have code names and everything. So one of the first ones, Operation San Antonio the first. And this begins in November of 1944. And uh, they make like the first real air raid against Tokyo, well, ever since the Doolittle raid, you would say. About 110 B-29s hit uh, some air factories and they really knocked them out. But uh, for people who don't know, Japan has some interesting weather. Um, it's funny to say Japan has a lot of clouds. It, that sounds weird, but for high altitude bombers, it's actually one of the worst places to bomb. You can't see much. And it has an enormous jet stream uh, that makes the bombs just go everywhere. So precision bombing is actually, I'd say, impossible at high altitudes. And uh, another thing is they still didn't have enough B-29s to mass up to just simply area bomb, which is what will solve a lot of the problems later. Uh, but San Operation San Antonio the first um, lackluster results, uh, but it scares the hell of the Japanese public. So up until this point, Japan's air defense is pretty terrifying. It's it's not bad. But with the bombs hitting, uh, because they're nighttime raiding and stuff, the Japanese public is beginning to lose confidence. And kind of in a desperate attempt to win back over the public, uh, the Japanese government actually does something which was terrifying if it worked. It was the Fugo balloon bomb campaign. So this was thousands of these explosive balloons being sent over to try and hit the coast of the United States. A few hundred of them actually really reached targets and it really didn't amount to anything, but it, it did kind of terrify America and it was an attempt. But other than that, they did raise their um, air defenses quite considerably. Uh, but I'd say from mid-1944 onwards, uh, Japan's capability to defend its airspace was uh, limited, to say the least. The next city that was bombed um, after Tokyo was Nagoya, 
And Nagoya had a, a Mitsubishi's aircraft factory, which was pretty large. So they hit that first through some oil warehouses, uh, military barracks and such. A lot of steel industry was there. And for the last nine months of the war, I just want to go through my notes because I want the tonnage. 14,054 tons of bombs was dropped in Nagoya. So that makes it the second city after Tokyo to be hit the most. And it would be hit over 21 times by uh, bombing raids. And these were uh, precision bombing raids at the beginning. So we're not getting into what we would call like the area bombing just yet. That's where real civilian deaths occur. The next one, which will hit my audience personally, is uh, the bombing of Kobe starts. Uh, so just to let you know, Dave, I did um, a review of the infamous film Grave of the Fireflies, which is a Japanese animation about firebombing, specifically the bombing of Kobe, which uh, I'd say was it was kind of the first time civilians were hit hard. And again, it was, it was precision bombing aimed at the factories, uh, but still, uh, this is where civilians uh, got hit by bombs, uh, caused quite a bit of uh, deaths, and it destroyed, a, I think, about a, a square mile of the city. It was a, a large part of it. And a lot of B-29s were employed this time because Curtis LeMay was getting better at just maintenance. Uh, a big deal was they had a lot of B-29s going on these missions and not returning because of all sorts of issues with the aircraft. And Curtis LeMay, he just figured out, okay, let's, uh, any, any sign that something's going wrong, just turn back and we're going to maintain, figure out what's going wrong with the bombers. And this really rose efficiency. I think that's kind of the unsung hero in this is he really improved efficiency of uh, the bomber command. So Kobe is hit, uh, and this is in February 1944, and it's going to get hit for the rest of the war. And uh, there's actually going to be another terrible bombing of them later on that causes a, a firestorm. It's a lot of people die. Uh, at this point, the Allies are kind of looking at um, how how well is this going, and how well could it go because they have projections for how many B-29s are going to have uh, in the future. And uh, I have estimates here from the military. They think if they bomb at this point, the six largest cities, uh, that they could knock out about 40% of the industrial capacity of Japan. It would make about 7.6 million man's out, man hours of work obsolete. So it's a significant blow to the Japanese, but it would also in their estimation, kill 500,000 people and make almost 10 million homeless. So very heavy numbers. Uh, this is also, um, it was weird to say, I actually made an episode years ago before I was a Pacific War Channel. Um, if anyone ever wants to look at this, it's interesting. Uh, they were looking into using a experimental weapon called a bat bomb, which was talked about at this point. So they had experimented on these made up Japanese little towns that they made in the United States, and they had used bats using um, fire explosive devices attached to the bats. So the idea would be the bats would be Dis dispense from a big kind of dispensing bomb they would go fly into people's attics and houses and then light their houses on fire uh, they didn't actually employ this but it was successful the testing in the united states proved it was a success which is kind of tragic that these bats were going to do this um, but at the same time uh, napalm production increased exponentially uh, as a result of both the need for incendiary bombs but also flamethrowers was basically found out to be the most effective weapon in the Pacific War. Uh, for the island warfare, it was by far the only means to get through cave systems. So uh, just to give some numbers, 1943, they were making about 500,000 pounds of napalm. In mid-1944, this goes to about 8 million pounds. So exponential increase. And with it, uh, 
a huge increase for the firebombing campaign really begins in March of 1945. And this is when Curtis LeMay is basically given more of a reign over everything. He does have Hap Arnold with him, but gradually Curtis LeMay is getting more and more control over what is going on. And uh, Hap Arnold basically tells him um, for priority targets, it's still going to be anything that builds aircraft, so aircraft factories. Second to that will be the cities themselves. And unfortunately for uh, Japan, for people who don't know, um, when it comes to building um, aircraft, uh, when we call these things factories, sometimes this is people going to their homes and building it there. Uh, Japan wasn't a full industrial power at the time, and it was not unheard of to have just like towns of people, even in rural areas, making aircrafts in their backyard. Well, at least parts for the aircrafts. So uh, that's... Sorry to interrupt. Okay, go Sorry to interrupt your, your role here, Craig. There's uh, there's a, actually a quote from LeMay's biography uh, after that he wrote he wrote after his retirement in the 60s, um, but he it's a recollection of going to Japan uh, for the surrender and going through towns and completely burnt out, um, and it was machine presses, burnt out machine presses in what were homes because yeah. uh, the the industrial as you said, there weren't there weren't factories in the very much that in the the German sense, which is what had been that was very clear targets through most of the war in uh, in Europe, uh, versus peace peace labor being farmed out to individual homes where pieces would be built and then taken to a central assembly uh, location. Um, so yeah, that's there's it isn't a there's not single single concentrated targets. It's very much a a dispersal of uh, construction. So, and American surveys before uh, they they had agents actually in Japan feeding them information about how things were produced, so they had full knowledge of even what you would consider a rural town. Um, it was not unheard of, and there's pictures of this. People can Google this. Uh, just mules bringing what would look like the piece of an aircraft wing from someone's backyard. It's that was the reality of it. So, when people look at the morality of it, there is some. Some people could say it was necessary to bomb what was just people's homes and so certain city targets, it, it, yeah, it, it gets messy. And I'm getting close to the end point of this where I'll just throw down some of the numbers to give people th the reality of the, the horrors of this because it was horrifying. Uh, Operation Meeting House, uh, known in English too as the Great Tokyo Air Raid, it was the most devastating attack. Um, they had thrown almost 350 B-29s from the Marianas to hit Tokyo. About 280 actually make it, because again, uh, Curtis LeMay is sending back any that are having technical faults during the flights just to save them, because he was all about efficiency. Uh, it was the most destructive air raid of the war. By this point, Tokyo's, I mean, th their air defenses were blown by this point, but the city's civil defenses, which includes um, fire brigades, just put out fires, they were overwhelmed. There was no chance for them. 16 square miles of the city, which is 7% of the city, was completely destroyed. People will argue the numbers that something like eight to 100,000 people were killed. A million were homeless. Uh, at this point, the Japanese government freaked out, ordered children from grade three to six to just run into the countryside, of which almost all of them do. And um, it's, the most, it's the most devastating raid. Um, even more so than both atomic bombs. Uh, it did unbelievable amount of damage. It was seen as an enormous success, of course, because it, it really did what it was supposed to do. Um, but just to add to that, aside from Tokyo, Osaka was hit by about 280 B-29s, killing roughly 4,000 people. 
eight square miles the city was destroyed. Kobe was hit by 330 B-29s in March, destroyed seven square miles of the city, which is about half of it. 8,000 people died. Almost a million people were homeless. Nagoya was hit again, although Nagoya gets hit for nine months. It's insane. Three square miles destroyed. It's almost the same story over and over. Uh, but by, by, by late March 1945, they're actually dropping propaganda leaflets, just telling the Japanese people, overthrow your governments, surrender, you're all going to die. And um, despite what people think, the Japanese population, we're talking about how much they didn't believe in the emperor anymore. That'll feed into something later. People don't acknowledge as much. Uh, if you go on Wikipedia and you look up the number of people killed, uh, it actually gives you <laughs> a table of estimates from different surveys. I'm not going to pretend I would know the number because it's very argued. Ranges from 200,000 to 500,000 just for the firebombing. Somewhere in between. But just to make a point, it it is one of the most tragic and devastating things that brought Japan to its knees. And it brings into question um, other things that we'll get into soon, but actually Dave was really interested in something. So I had to look it up myself because I wasn't too, too knowledgeable about this aspect. Something else that comes into play that was um, associated with the firebombing campaign was the laying of sea mines in what was known as Operation Starvation, which is a good title for it, sadly enough. So uh, B-29s actually performed this. 2,000 sea mines were planted in different bays and parts of uh, any waters around the seas of Japan. Uh, this was done at night at low altitudes because, well, just to thwart any radar and being attacked by things. Japan's night uh, air defense capabilities were terrible because they never progressed well in radar tech. Um, they had gone a different direction in the war, and there was, re there was rationales for that. They actually did well at the early part of the war doing something else. Uh, but they they had nothing really to thwart uh, nighttime raids. Their anti-aircraft guns couldn't work very well, and their fighters just they they couldn't do anything. Uh, the sea mines were dropped in all sorts of places, notably in Kobe's Bay. Uh, it destroyed what was left of the shipping. Although by this point in the war, the Japanese merchant fleet is gone. Uh, but it meant that Japan couldn't ship anything within its own home waters to different parts of its country. And this resulted in a mass starvation uh, because alongside this, the rice crops failed. And uh, well, anyone who's seen Graveyard of the Fireflies, the theme of it is starvation for a reason. And even in 46, the Japanese public is starving in front of the Americans who are occupying them too. Like uh, it, it, it's a tragic part of this that doesn't get enough awareness, I guess, is how much that they had starved to death. But um, if you wanted to link the big rationales for the surrender of Japan, it actually, people did argue that the um, the sea mining operation was maybe arguably more successful than firebombing because it had broken Japan's um, social fabric. The people changed. Um, the people were very hardened. They really believed in what you would call the propaganda. Uh, when you're starving, you're starving. Uh, they went against each other. The Japanese performed atrocities upon themselves in places like Tokyo. Um, horrible things happened. And uh, the so when the social fabric was broken, uh, I mean, fighting for one's country, like they, while the Americans thought was going to happen, might not have been the case. There's arguments on both sides as to what it would look like if they invaded the Japanese home islands, and it's not a clear-cut case, I would say. Uh, but that brings us kind of to the 
end, which I, I hope Dave can throw more bones into this, it's kind of the rationale for the firebombing before we talk about atomic weapons, because I do want to talk about that a bit later. Well, just to, I mean, a couple of couple of additional points for the for the the strict or the, I guess the the tactically minded uh, viewers out there. One of the big differences that LeMay put forward with the um, operation, the initial firebombing in Tokyo, was that instead of going in at high altitude, yeah. uh, was to take advantage of, as you just pointed out, the really really poor. Japanese nighttime capability, both in night fighters and in uh, uh, anti-aircraft technology. Um, and they basically, they stripped down the B-29s. They took out the waste gunners. They, they didn't even bring the gunners, like the waste gunners with them um, so that they had that much more room and weight capacity to bring more incendiaries with them, just as, as much fuel and, um, and bomb load as possible. And they came in at low altitude, and it was somewhere between five and eight thousand feet. Um, so they basically nullified the, uh, the the negative impact of the the, the high altitude jet stream. Yeah, um, and that really increased the accuracy and really let them put um, put maximum bomb loads within the, the the designated confined areas that they they were looking to hit. Um, so that that that's a really that's a that's a that was a huge risk, and LeMay admits in multiple points in multiple histories that that was a huge risk that he was going to take the fall for if it didn't work. Yeah, um, it it did clearly it did work. Um, to the other thing about, I mean, LeMay often gets the credit for being the the the, the mastermind. Um, you know, whether you think of him as Doctor Evil or what, what, however you want to look at him, like he's the uh, he's the is the mastermind behind it. It's actually very likely that one of his subordinate commanders, uh, Thomas Power, yeah. um, Tommy Power was probably, who went on to actually be the head of Strategic Air Command uh, later in the Cold War. Uh, he succeeded um, LeMay there. Uh, it was actually likely LeMay, um, Power's plan uh, that was presented to LeMay and LeMay ran with it, letting Power actually lead the attack. Um, Power wasn't a, a a seasoned combat pilot. He wasn't uh, like a longtime veteran uh, combat pilot. He'd been a, a, involved in a lot of training um, and uh, logistics type stuff back in uh, in the states before being deployed uh, to the Pacific in 1945. Letting a relatively inexperienced commander actually lead a mission like that is would is a strange move unless that person is intimately familiar with the idea and the concepts behind the uh, behind the attack. There, that I'm aware of, there's no smoking gun, there's no paper trail saying, yep, this is this is why Power led it, anything like that, or that it was his idea. But that's the, the supposition from a fair number of, uh, of recent studies of, the, uh, of the, the work going into the lead up to the firebombing. So. Well, Curtis LeMay, he volunteered himself to be the scapegoat. Even for Hap Arnold, he, Curtis LeMay, yep. he intentionally did not seek approval from Hap Arnold for most of the campaigns that he did so that the fall damage would be on him if they didn't succeed. They happened to succeed, but still he was willing to put his own throat in the line, which is interesting. I, I found that pretty interesting. Um, from, again, like LeMay is, is a, a hobby that it's a terrible, terrible hobby, but he's a, <laughs> he's a bit of a hobby. 
he's very much renowned for that throughout his entire career is sort of making the making a decision and making like this is this is what he this is what he's going to do and if it works great and if it doesn't then you know it it's his fault and he accepts the blame um but certainly a man who's willing to make make decisions right or wrong um and then live with and deal with the consequences that's uh um yeah, yeah that's people who the re- recurring sentiment towards him from people who served under him at any point through his career um, was that he was a he was a man that led from the front um, and earned and commanded respect and I, I mean I will almost say undying loyalty from the the people that served under him he was uh, he was a a soldier's a soldier's general. That's, uh, an airman's an airman's uh, an airman's pilot. I, I don't know what the the air force equivalent of that is, but yeah, yeah. very much uh, lead from the front. So, in comparison to like let's say like someone like Douglas MacArthur, because uh, when he was trying to run for pres- when he was trying to run for presidency during uh, the war, uh, a, I forget the name of the Republican senator was trying to get a campaign to see who would vote for Douglas MacArthur, and there was only one group that wouldn't vote for him: people who had served under him says it all <laughs> I, I had to throw something in about dougie because everyone i for some reason douglas macarthur haunts my podcast uh, i just I, I i i affectionately refer to, i mean obviously like dugout doug comes out a fair bit uh, in the korean war yeah. um, and i've referred to him as a megalomaniac macarthur uh, numerous times america's caesar <laughs> well yeah i mean that's there's, there's there's a biography that happens to have the same name but uh um no i mean it's I mean, very very different styles of command let's just uh, we'll yeah. we leave it at that so uh as my professor said when in regards to curtis lemay but just the firebombing in general if you wanted to sum it up into a short sentence rationale they thought if they could hit and do the most damage in a small window of time the chances of ending the war would increase thus less than the amount of deaths overall because prolonged campaigns equals more deaths it's kind that's, of a uh, the, idea. the the quote from lemay and again that's some and forgive me for reading i don't have this one committed okay. to memory but uh the actual direct quote from lemay from his biography um it is it's more immoral to use less force than necessary than it is to use more if you use less force you kill off more of humanity in the long run because you only protract the struggle and that that was the base. That was Lemay's rationale for thinking from the moment that he went into combat um, in '42. I guess that would have been, um, but right '42 or '43. I can't remember when he actually deployed into combat situations in Europe. But uh, and that remained his thinking through the war years, and then um, in the, the post-war, when he was uh, went into uh, command, strategic air command, and then on as a uh, um, there's some very interesting um, notes about LeMay during from the, the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, mm. to jump to jump 20 years forward, uh, but he was the uh, the Air Force Chief of Staff um, at the time was was in the room when Kennedy went through all the Kennedy's deliberations during the uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and 100% LeMay was in favor of of pressing the button and. Launching wow. preemptive, launching strikes against the Soviet against Cuba and then the Soviet Union, overwhelming force. 
it, you know, not to get sidetracked, but oh my, it's such a fact that situation is so fascinating as to how it evolved with how Khrushchev perceived Kennedy just by meeting him. And then that fumble and what Kennedy did and how he reacted, which it's incredible how that situation arose. It, I mean, you want to talk, I mean, walking the razor's edge is a, I mean, that's a phrase that yeah. sort of can get tossed around, but like literally the, the Cuban Missile Crisis was what one mistake at any point and we live in a very, very different planet, so. Yeah. And before yeah. we jump into the Cold War, I mean, I just wanted to kind of finish off. I don't know what it is, but I, I don't think one can talk about the firebombing campaigns without adding in the atomic weapons because they happen almost at the same time and you see similar effects. But it also brings into the question, well, the surrender of Japan. And I did save quite a few quotes because I, again, I know some American audiences hate to hear this kind of stuff, but the rationales for why Japan actually surrendered are not exactly what was taught to the American public after World War II. It's changed in more recent years and it's more acknowledged, but even the rationale for why the bombs were dropped is questionable. Were they dropped to save American lives? Probably. That's probably has something to do with it because, you know, if America did have to invade the home islands, the Japanese were not completely done. There was going to be casualties on both sides. It was going to be brutal. But something else was occurring. There was a tension with the USSR for both Japan and the United States. Both have unique reasons why they do things in the last year because of the USSR. And knowledge of exactly what was going on wasn't really made public until after Hirohito's death in, I think it was 1989, when some of his public notes were made, uh, sorry, not public notes, some of his uh, diary notes from Kido were made public. Although um, the, the family, the Imperial family has still withheld a lot of that uh, to this day. They don't want to unleash the full beast that's in there because I'm sure there's a lot of naughty secrets. Um, as people might not be aware, uh, the narrative for a long time was that Hirohito was somewhat a hostage during the war and he had no decision-making, let's say, or he didn't uh, pay attention. It's very false. He was enthralled by the war. He had an imperial headquarters built up where he received daily notifications of what was going on. He did choose when he acted to make decisions. And that's what's interesting is because he chose not to surrender for a long time. And that's where it comes into this. But um, when, the United, when the USSR invaded Manchuria, on the same day, uh, the second atomic bomb goes off. That almost was overwhelmingly the only reason. The invasion of Manchuria was the last straw for Japan. They had been trying to broker a deal with Moscow for a long time because they thought that that was their best option. They thought they would get the best deal from Moscow. And uh, it's, it's kind of ironically Japan's fault for giving Moscow mixed messages with what conditions they wanted because their conditions were pretty unreasonable. And Moscow, likewise, when they even like similar to the United States, when they replied they were also ambiguous too in a lot of ways so it was a lot of miscommunication i find but as soon as stalin initiated what was just a complete destruction of the kwangtung army uh japan panicked and they decided to surrender it's not to say that the firebombing and atomic weapons have nothing to play in this of, of course they do but the loss of the reason they went to war in the first place manchuria uh their breadbasket 
everything that they wanted to keep uh, the, the possibility of Stalin occupying parts of Japan because communism was Japan's number one enemy uh, by far and large. That's what freaked them out. And there is a lot of quotes from officials during the meetings that were held on the 9th. I mean, uh, here, I can go through a few. I have some, I actually have some interesting quotes. Maybe I'll, I'll say later on from admirals in the United States, their viewpoints on the atomic weapons, which were very negative, I find. It's interesting. Halsey, Halsey of all people, did not like the atomic bomb. And he was pretty gung-ho about killing Japanese. So I found that interesting. But uh, a lot of the American admirals and people who are in the know, they say things like, uh, I have Nimitz, for example, the atomic bomb played no decisive part from a purely military standpoint in the defeat of Japan. And he asserts the Japanese had, in fact, already sued for peace. And he was saying this early on. This is because some of American high command is aware because they were receiving um, information from Project Ultra and Magic. Uh, they were reading all the conference notes from the Japanese. They actually knew what the Japanese were going to say to them. And they knew about um, Hirohito's position, a lot of things. And the Japanese don't even talk about the atomic weapons at the beginning, almost as if they, they're not aware of the first bomb. It's kind of startling when you hear about the notes on the ninth, uh, but they're obsessed with Manchuria. And Hirohito, he says to people around him, eh, we have to sue for peace uh, as soon as Manchuria was uh, seized. But what's interesting, I find, if I can find some quotes about Hirohito, Hirohito spoke to the Imperial Royal family in the morning to let them know before he told um, the cabinet that he decided he was going to finally do something and ask for a surrender. And um, uh, his uncle asked him if the Kokotai would be dissolved, would we continue the war? And Hirohito unflinchingly says, of course. And this is the point I want to make. From the viewpoint of, I'd say, just about every Japanese commander, and Emperor Hirohito, above all else, uh, the survival of the Kokutai was the only thing stopping the surrender. Hirohito would not allow himself to be killed or the imperial family to be killed. And uh, from the Japanese high command standpoint, uh, the dissolvement of the Kokutai was unacceptable. Uh, I won't get into exactly what the Kokutai is because it's a long conversation, but it's the embodiment of the constitution is within the emperor, not the people of Japan. And he represents the people. And his, not his divinity, but him being in a capacity to reign over Japan or to be the figurehead was a necessity for the Japanese. That was the one condition that they just could not, not accept. Because uh, the Americans, the Potsdam, they had given, you know, a declaration of how to surrender. And it was ambiguous uh, about the Kokutai. Uh, Moscow did the same thing. Uh, so it scared the Japanese. And uh, there was actually, even, even when they knew that there was going to be a third bomb that was going to hit them, there was peep, there was a high commander of the Japanese who was getting like an insurgency going because he, he didn't want to accept surrender. Uh, another thing that freaked out Hirohito was he was re receiving reports um, just before they decided to surrender that uh, from police and from um, barracks commanders that there were soldiers and civilians talking about how incompetent he was. And that scared the hell out of Hirohito because that was de facto a dissolvement of the Kokutai. So the social fabric breaking in Japan was actually going to force a surrender in a lot of ways. It's awkward to say. Yeah. I don't know your position on uh, what it, uh, this conversation is kind of like, why did they surrender in a lot of ways? And there's a lot of variables, but you know. I think, I think one of the 
one of the challenges with talking about the the decision to drop the bomb, um, especially in well, in 2000, 2023, and even over the last 60 years, um, when a lot of this sort of conversation and debate has really grown and, and, and developed, is that we, and I'm going to say we, and I'm going to say like, well, me anyways, in the West, looking at it from the perspective of 2023 and what I know about the development of atomic weapons and looking back on it, um, as opposed to what an atomic bomb was viewed as in August of 1945. And very much the, the I'm going to say the public perception um, was that there wasn't really a good understanding. I'm not going to say that there wasn't a good understanding of what an atomic bomb was. It was just a big bomb. Like that's that was very much the, the viewpoint of it. That's how Truman looked at it. That's how that's how all the senior American leadership certainly looked at it. Um, there were men, I mean, like, you know, everyone wants to quote Oppenheimer, like, you know, it's, you know, you've looked into the, I can't remember the quote off the top of my head, but it's the, that famous one that I roll my eyes at that he actually never said in 1945 and actually only said it like later on. But anyways, so that's, a, that's a completely, yeah. yeah, it's that I am, what is it? I'm, I am death destroyer of worlds. I think that's, yeah. he never actually said that in 1945. It was, he said it later and it was misquoted back, but anyways, that's how there's a very small cadre of people that actually looked at the atomic bomb as being this like this really pivotal changing thing in 1945. It was just a really big bomb that one plane could drop. And it was great because if you can get 300 planes dropping, each dropping one of those, my God, what a, what a great way to end a war. Like that's, that's very much the viewpoint in 1945. Um, and I mean, not, I mean, I know we're going to start we're going to get into my ballywhack and start talking about the Cold War and how this evolves. But that's that's the viewpoint and that's the mentality where of how it was looked at. And it, if you've already gone through months of your cities being firebombed with significantly higher death tolls in a lot of cases, yeah. um, night after night, week after week, month after month, like one bomb like wiping out a city, what's the difference if it's one plane wiping out the city versus 300 planes wiping out the city? There's, there's not that much of a difference, but if you're armed, like I, I actually don't know how many men were part of the IGA stationed in Manchuria, but knowing that that, and hundreds of thousands, at least I'm sure that were stationed in China, knowing that they were under direct threat, like this isn't the civilian population. This isn't this, that this, this non-fighting population. This is your, this is your power projection that is going to be surrounded and being attacked by the red army. That's a really immediate and definite threat. And, and I don't know if I, I don't want to go into it, but for people for people to understand, like the Battle of Kalkin Gol is like a, a small precursor of at least the Japanese put up a fight then. This yeah. was a landslide. They were completely obliterated. The commander uh, from the general imperial headquarters had gone over to Manchuria to see, and he came back with a very simple report. They're done. He yep. said that they were just done and that they wouldn't be able to. Uh, they said maybe the Russians will stop somewhere in Korea, but why wouldn't they just take all of Southeast Asia and then Japan? And then this goes into the argument of, well, given what was known at the times, why were the two bombs dropped the way they were dropped? Uh, after the first bomb is dropped, Japan doesn't surrender. 
And the Americans are reading their magic notes and they know that they're not even talking about it and that they are not going to surrender. And in fact, that they're panic messaging Moscow and that Moscow has now basically said to them, no, we don't care anymore. On the 9th, Moscow invade, well, the Soviet Union invades and a second bomb is dropped on a target that isn't a military target. A lot of people uh, forget Nagasaki was more of a test. Um, a lot of people would say it was a test as to what a nuclear bomb would look like hitting certain mountains. Uh, they wanted to know the effect I, on, yeah. To be fair, Nagasaki wasn't even the original target. Yeah. Uh, Kokuo was, the, was the, the original intended target. Nagasaki was the backup. Um, the difference between Fat Man and Little Boy, um, the the bomb on Hiroshima was a was a straightforward, like it was guaranteed to go off. Um, there was yeah. there was no testing with it. Like they knew that that was going to explode, and it was very much like you know, the Americans making that decision that we're gonna we're gonna use what we know works. Mm -hmm. the, the second bomb, uh, the plutonium bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki, was very much a more of a, a test model. They hadn't fired one before. They wanted to make sure that to see what the effects of that were going to be, um, whether using uranium versus plutonium, et cetera. Um, so yeah, that's, there's, uh, there's, there's a very specific reason that, uh, that Nagasaki was, had a very different result than what, uh, and it was a much more muted, much more muted result than the, uh, the impact on, uh, on uh, Hiroshima. I can't remember where I had read this in a book, but there was an interesting point made by um, geolog geological surveys. People were interested in the effects of the Nagasaki bomb because they wanted to know, because it was a hill-like hill area, what a nuclear bomb would do to that kind of uh, structural integrity because they were thinking about other places like the USSR. <laughs> so it was a good, it was, for lack of better words, a good place to test. And uh, like you said, the firebombing campaigns left very little areas to bomb um that's messed up to say but they didn't have good targets anymore hiroshima was a military target uh, i think something like ten thousand iga members died uh they did hit military active personnel there uh but nakasaki was uh, tragic and it did hit uh, what was it the first church ever erected in japan was in nagasaki i believe so it's double tragic in a lot of ways uh but i actually before we jump into the cold war i got one little quote because Hirohito has always fascinated me and the personal notes, but um, he made two announcements uh, for the surrender. One was to the general public, uh, but one was addressed to just the uh, sailors and soldiers. And that one is more of interest to me. And here's the direct quote. Now that the Soviet Union has entered the war against us, to continue under the present conditions at home and abroad would recklessly incur even more damage to ourselves and result in endangering the very foundation of the empire's existence. Therefore, even though the enormous fighting spirit still exists in the Imperial Japanese Navy and Army, I am going to make peace with the United States, Britain, and the Soviet Union, as well as Chongqing, in order to maintain our glorious national polity. Two things that you know I find powerful in there, uh, while acknowledging that the spirit of the fighting is still there, because my God, like he, he has to, they, they still want to fight, obviously. But uh, he mentions nothing about the atomic bombs or the fire campaigns. He, he mentions the invasion of Manchuria. So at least from his viewpoint, he thinks that his military only is concerned with that. That's pretty illuminating. And he's very concerned with the national polity, which is his survival and the Kokotai. And uh, well, when Douglas MacArthur writes the constitution for Japan for them, 
uh, I think one could argue that the United States and Japan got into bed together to make a narrative to keep things good and solid in Japan so that people wouldn't attack them so that they could uh, position themselves better against someone else. And I think it was considered a conspiracy theory back then to ever acknowledge that the two atomic bombs might have been actually pointed to threatening the USSR. <laughs> and I think the conspiracy theorists might have some bones in there because it did effectively scare the USSR. I mean, it got Stalin to boot up his nuclear program faster. But yeah. I, I would say that from everything that I've ever read about the, the decisions to, to drop the bombs, it was very much about dealing with Japan. Yeah. Um, but there, there wasn't anyone within the senior political leadership or the military leadership that wasn't, that wasn't already eyeing the poss at least the possibility um, that the, the, the Soviet Union was going to be a, a, a potential rival. We'll put that mildly. Yeah. Um, as I said at the beginning, like there's a there is a lot of you know debate and conjecture within Cold War studies about exactly when the Cold War started, whether it was sure. whether it was from the the, the 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 birth of the the Russian Revolution, whether it was 1947, 1948, 1950, whatever that happens to be. Um, but uh, I mean yeah. the the patent the patent quote about like you know it's like oh we we fought the wrong enemy like, you know, and, I, and I. I I hate that quote, but I see it constantly all the time. It's the movie. Um, it's the movie. Yeah, that's Churchill coming out with like you know basically Churchill's idea for Operation Unthinkable um, in the the summer of 1945. Like, there's already this viewpoint that that the the, the Soviet Union was that was the next rival, that was the next opponent. Um, and if anybody if anybody wants to, I have yet to hear a convincing argument that. The, the use of the atomic weapons in 1945 didn't have a an ulterior, more maybe a more subliminal motive and message to them than uh, than what we than the face value of like you know, it was just against Japan. So it's also a case of people have a people in general have a hard time with black and white scenarios uh, because the nuclear weapon had an effect on the Soviet Union. Doesn't mean it wasn't also obviously done to get Japan to surrender. Both are present. Uh, people have a hard time. It's always one or the other, uh, particular when, I'm, when Americans are very heated about the nuclear bomb too. I mean, it's a contentious question, right? Because of the morality. I think, and that's, I was just about to say, I think that's very much when you start getting into the the morality, yeah. the morality questions and, you know, it's when is, when is mass killing acceptable when is it not killing like when is it not ex like there's yeah there's there's a huge amount of debate and conjecture and it's very heated i've been part of some very heated conversations over this so that's... Me, me as well i i i always find it's as a canadian it, we almost have this carte blanche because it's like to Americans speaking about this, it's somehow different from non-Americans speaking about this because, you know, it falls on to them. They feel, uh, there's a, a bit of a defense to legitimize what had happened. Was it necessary to drop the bombs? I have a lot of quote here from American commanders that say they don't believe it was necessary and that they think um, before any of the landings would have been made, 
on any of the islands 10 days before they believed even at the time the Japanese were ready to surrender. They were reading the notes from the meetings. By, so having the imperial notes about what Hirohito is saying, I mean, Truman did stop the firebombing campaigns and he stopped uh, the third bomb from going until um, the 19th, I think, because they were reading the notes. They knew what the Jap they knew the Japanese were panicking and they knew something was up. So again, it, it, it's so uh, we're here in the present day talking about this. What was believed back then is another different thing. For example, like you had mentioned, the Japanese, how many bombs did the Americans have? They could have had hundreds for all they know. They had no idea. So yeah. it's a great threat, a nuclear weapon, because uh, the Japanese Navy and Army independently, when they looked at uh, Hiroshima's bombing to figure out if it was, in fact, an atomic weapon, because of course, both branches had independent nuclear scientists. They couldn't work on that one together either. Uh, they, they acknowledged, yeah, that's definitely an atom bomb. And that was actually, that came pretty late to the cabinet. Uh, I think they only found out that they, before they met in the ninth, or actually could have been after. It might've been on the 12th, but uh, yeah, it took a while for the, the scientists to explain to the cabinet, this is in fact what we've been working on ourselves and the Germans, of course. Yeah. But uh. I guess we can jump right into what's exciting for me because I'm pretty ignorant to a lot of things of the Cold War. Um, well, there's, I mean, the, the good news is that there's a fantastic channel that uh, is uh, that takes a look at the Cold War mm -hmm. and it is uh, not creatively titled the Cold War. Um, but uh, when we first started talking about this, uh, we sort of like, there's a nice segue actually that happens um, it's not like the, it's not like Japan surrenders and suddenly like, you know, that's it. There's like, there's no more military, everything sort of, everybody packs up, it goes home and, messy. Yeah. and there's, there's no, there's no future development and there's no future, um, progress in terms of, you know, technology and strategy and all these things. Um, but one feeds into the other naturally because that's how things work. Nothing, nothing exists in a vacuum. Nothing comes out completely on its own. Um, the early Cold War period, uh, when you look at nuclear strategy, is very much this is the the strategies and the the technologies that are employed. We, I mean, there's again looking for what I was saying earlier that we look from 2003 and you look back and you think of like all oh, the Cold War and nuclear weapons, and we think of ICBMs and we think of B-52s, um, you know, Slim Pickens riding, riding like falling out of a, a B-52, riding, riding a bomb, like that's that's what we think of, or that's what I think of, anyways, because maybe my mind is just a little bit, you know, twisted sometimes. But what you see is that early development of atomic strategy is developed directly from the, the strategic bombing campaigns, both from Europe, but especially from Japan. And it's very much based around this idea of, of overwhelming force. Um, and I mean, LeMay and, you know, Venberg and, and, you know, Hap Arnold and all these guys are all like, you know, tombs, like all these guys are very much, Tui, not tombs, um, General Tui, they're all very much like, you know, interconnected and like, talking about this, these ideas. But an atomic bomb in 1945 and 1946 is still pretty small. And I'm going to use that in quotations because it's small relative to thermonuclear weapons, which aren't developed until the early 1950s with, you know, Ivy Mike and, you know, what the, the Soviets come up with um, a year later. Um, there's, this, there's this change that happens 
later on. But the, those early atomic bombs, they're small. Like they're, I mean, you know, 20, 28 kilotons. It's not small if it's falling on you, but relatively speaking, they're small. It's no, and again, what I was saying earlier, there's no difference in the the long-term impact of one atomic bomb in 1945 falling on you than you know, 300 B-29 worth of incendiary bombs. Yeah. And the strategy develops around this. And so the Americans, as they, they begin to recognize that the Soviet Union is probably going to be the next opponent, um, they actually don't come out with the, their first plans, um, like atomic strike plans against the Soviet Union until 47, I want to say, is the, the first, might be 46, is the first proposed plan that actually never gets accepted. It isn't until 1947 that there's an actual plan that sort of gets committed to paper and like, yeah, this is the theoretical plan. It's worked on in 1948 and then 1949 with off tackle, an operation off tackle in 1949. That's the first real American plan um, to target the, how, how they're going to use atomic weapons to target the Soviet Union. Uh, 1949 also happens to be the, the year that the Soviets um, detonate Joe one or DS one, which is the, their first atomic bomb. And that really changes the, and that changes the equation in a really big way from 1945 to 1949, the Americans have sole atomic monopoly. Um, and they, there's no fear of retaliation, um, to them or their allies, uh, in a, in an atomic sense, obviously like the, the Soviet union still has an enormous conventional, uh, armed forces. Um, but there isn't the risk of atomic retaliation. Um, so the American plan develops around this idea of exactly what they were doing to Japan in 1945. And it's hitting industrial targets, hitting oil, petroleum facilities, gas facilities, and denying the Soviet ability to wage war. That's that's the initial plans. So that's what everything is built around. Um, and it's very much looking at targeting, you know, as I said, oil and gas facilities, like all of these, these, these types of things where this, and not targeting the Soviet military, they're not looking to target military units with nuclear weapons, with atomic bombs. The idea is that conventional allied conventional forces will absorb the impact of the, the so of a Soviet attack while the U S air force, because by 1947, it is the U S air force at that point. Um, they're going to use their atomic bombs to hit and deny Soviet ability to wage war. And there was estimates between a three and a six month gap um, before that really took hold and really took effect and completely shut down the, the Soviet war machine. That's the, that was the, the original plans. And then things start to change. And as things start to change, and that's the introduction of a Soviet atomic bomb which suddenly, okay, there's, there's the possibility of a threat of retaliation. And that threat of retaliation is still pretty small because the Soviets don't have a delivery system that's capable of hitting the United States, certainly. They can still hit targets in Europe, they can hit targets in Japan, things like that. But um, at that point, it's the, the TU-4 bull, the Tupolev TU-4 bull, which is a, uh, ironically enough, is a carbon copy um, of the uh, of a of the B twenty nine, the uh, the Soviet Union had had taken a, impounded some B twenty nines that had landed in the Soviet Union Go um, after attack <laughs> after attacks on Japan and reversed engineered reversed engineered them, 
and the the joke is that they were reverse engineered to the point that the the manufacturer's stamp was even like designed into the Soviet equivalent of the TU4. But that TU4, the B29, it doesn't have the range to to go from Soviet territory to hit to 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 strike at Washington and to strike the continental U.S. from where the Soviet bases are. But there's suddenly like they start have to consider now they've got to start considering like you know targets at least in in Europe, definitely, and possibly in in parts of Asia. Um, and it's at that point that things really start to change uh, in terms of the war planning, and the war planning suddenly begins to shift, not necessarily away from hitting oil and gas and industrial targets, but hitting oil and industrial targets as well as military targets like air bases, and that's denial of making sure like it's denial of service um, type of attacks where if you can hit those airfields before the, the Soviet attack can go forward, then you've, you've eliminated their ability to respond. And it still gives, gives you as the, the West, like the Americans, the advantage. First strike policy, yeah, Absolutely. And this is all sort of based around the idea that the U S still has overwhelming force because they have more bombs Mm-hmm. And more equipment than the so- nuclear equipment than the Soviets do. But as time goes on, as the bombs get bigger, and as the Soviets build more bombs, then this becomes it. Change the equation starts changing, where it's suddenly like you know you can't. It's based like, that idea was predicated that you that that the West could strike and eliminate all Soviet weapons on the ground before any kind of attack could happen. Yeah. The more bombs there are, the more like you know the, with the percentages, some are going to get missed. So there's still the, the the opportunity for the Soviets to be able to retaliate. And vehicles are getting like delivery vehicles are getting faster. They're getting bigger, faster. Um, certainly the the speed difference between a, a B29 and a B52. Um, and then you look at a B58 Hustler, which is like a, suddenly that's a you've got a supersonic delivery weapon like starting from 1960. Um, and then you've got IC, the introduction of ICBMs. That that window of time that the Soviets, that the Allies and the Soviets have between attack and response, keeps getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And then you have the the and with ICBMs things like that window gets really short. Like it's the the four minute warning in the UK, yeah. oh literally four minutes from launch to destruction. Um, and if anybody's ever seen the movie Threads, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you haven't seen Threads, it's an, um, it's an excellent movie, but it, it haunts my dreams. Like, I mean, Graveyard of the Fireflies, you know, Threads and uh, Come and See are three movies that continue to haunt my dreams um, in no way, good good way, shape or form. Um, all really powerful, strong movies, but I digress. There's that four minute window, the idea of a 15 minute window from launch to the strikes on the, the East Coast of the United States that's sort of where we really enter like this is the the public imagination of what we understand certainly in the present of what what the cold war was like in terms of the threat of nuclear weapons um and it changes from you know it's like not being able to first strike and prevent the opponent from uh, being able to attack you and hit you first and it suddenly become to have enough weapons left over that you can wipe your opponent out and hopefully you kill more of them than they've killed of you. And this is the whole Dr. Strangelove. Yeah, of course. Um, it always comes back. It always comes back to movies, right? I mean, it, it's, it's a I, fantastic movie and it really, it captured yeah. the narrative. Yeah. 
it 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 really did. Like the the the, the joke about the mine shaft gap is like it's pulled directly out of the the, the headlines in the in the, the late fifties and the sixties with like you know the, the missile gap, the bomber gap, like all of these things. Um, but that progression, like we don't get to ICBMs and counterforce and you know it's like mutually assured destruction. You don't get that out of the blue. That all comes out of this step-by-step -step incremental development yeah. that all comes back to the firebombing in the firebombings from March of 1945. Like that's where it all stems from. The from 1946, 1947, from those original atomic plans, there wasn't a major revision of those plans until 1960. Um, the introduction of the emergency, what was generally called the emergency war plan that existed through Eisenhower, like through Truman and, and Eisenhower. That wasn't rethought into the, into the, what's called the, the PSYOP, the single integrated operating plan. Um, that was 1960. So you've got 15 years of these massive technological changes that are happening. And, and it's not just the technology and the advancement of nuclear weapons themselves, but of delivery systems. It's that move from bomber, bomber delivery to, to, missile delivery with the, the those much shortened windows it took until 1960 to revisit and redo the war plan um completely um which is i mean that's a in military terms with that much technological advancement that's a huge huge length of time oh, yeah. um, and even the psyop didn't necessarily rewrite huge parts of the emergency war plan so much as it just took the air force's plan and the Navy's plan and the Army's plan and sort of mashed them all together to make sure that they weren't killing the same targets three times over from each of the three services because no one was talking to each other because inter-service rivalry is something that has never, ever gone away and continues yeah. to exist to this day. But, but it all stemmed, like all of this, all stems back to the, 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 the strategies and the, the plans that were formulated in 1945 um, and probably even earlier than that. Um, Definitely. I mean, you want to look at the, the firebombing of Hamburg, or I mean, you could look at Coventry even. Dresden. Just like massive, yeah. yeah, like area destruction. Um, it all stems out of that. It's it's this really, nothing, as I said, nothing, op nothing exists in a vacuum at all. Everything relates back to something else and this incremental Definitely. growth that happens. So it's a lot of trial and error. Yeah, that's a lot of that as well. Um, and fortunately, I mean, fortunately, the, the trialing in this was only ever tests and practice exercises, and it was never anything real. Because um, if it was ever real, th this doesn't happen. <laughs> We're all kind of like this at this point in time in history with current events. So, yeah. It, interest, I mean, speaking of, speaking of the, the opposite side, um, or making reference to them, we still don't have a good idea of what the Soviet war plan ever looked like. I mean, we know about the idea of seven days to the Rhine, um, but the Soviet nuclear plans have never really come out of the, they've never really been made public and official and like all those things. No, Tom Clancy There's, never gave it to the public. <laughs> uh, well, Tom, Tom Clancy gave his own version of everything to the public, Sorry. but uh, <laughs> that's... Uh, yeah, that's what did I what did I hear Tom Clancy books I were called? I was like war, fantasy war porn. Like it's oh, this... they are Red Storm. I'm... 
Red Storm Rising is the perfect. I, I no, do no. love the I book because I read. I love kid. the book, but yeah, you know there is an algorithm to Tom Clancy novels. America gets hit. America comes back and unanimously wins no matter what. So yeah, yeah. no, absolutely, absolutely, and it's always based on technical superiority. And it like is. He smart, really likes like, the tech. Yeah, the the, the whole absolutely that that whole thing. And I bought into that as a you know really big way when I was a kid when I was reading those books. I mean, The Hunt for Red October is still one of my f- absolute favorite movies. It's such a good movie, um, and the book is better. Like Definitely. I will yeah. uncategorically say that absolutely the book is better. But even to this day, like you know, it's thirty. We're more than thirty years since the end of the Cold War. We still don't know what the Soviet war like. The American war plans have largely come to light like we know what a lot of those um like how that developed year over year and what the changes were and how the the target especially the targeting um how the targeting changed um over time we have no idea what this the soviet plans look like i I didn't know that myself so they haven't fully disclosed some of these you i guess because there's well you would be led to believe they're still relevant then well that's yeah, that's that entirely possible. That's um, why governments, Soviet, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like the, the early Soviet war plans, I, I, one would assume that, you know, that the, they would look very similar to what the American plan was, but, but we don't know that. Like that, and that's one of the, to me, that's one of the really interesting things um, about it all is this, uh, that we, we have pretty good disclosure in terms of what the American plans looked like. Um, but really very little accurate conception um, of what things look like on the other side. I think there are scholars that are working with the sources and that that have been released. There's a, a huge challenge with sources as well. The, the Russian archives were open for a brief, brief period of window, time. And then they were closed. Yeah. I, I have a, but a lot of them. Went. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, but a lot of the military archives remained sealed. Um, and obviously, like you know, anything that's that was nuclear was going to be that much more difficult to get access to. Um, so there's a lot of oblique stuff that uh, that people have have sort of gotten access to. Whether it's, I mean, the Ukrainian state archives has been a really big um, has been a really big source um, for a lot of uh, a lot of scholars. Um, some of the Balt like the Baltic archives and it's in Central uh, Central Asia. And central um yeah. caucuses one but... of my professors uh well he is Bo- he's from bosnia he he said that uh, some of the archives in the former yugoslav like they had decent information on some things about uh military preparedness in the cold war yeah there's i mean depending but it's a lot of, like there's nothing there's not there's, there's very little direct coming out of the the, the former soviet archives it's very much in the russian soviet archives of course it's very much coming out of from allies it's coming from former soviet republics and a lot of those nuclear things were they were centralized they were they were under the control of the 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 russians so it's there's a lot of oblique stuff there's a lot of you know there's things that a lot of people can piece together because you know there's a lot of people out there that are super smart certainly much smarter than i am on a lot of things um but but yeah like it it that's always one of those things that i i'm very much looking forward to somebody finally being able to get in and take a look at this and really really dig into it so and and from a retrospect if let's say the soviet archives admitted to bluffs 
uh, anytime they would have been bluffing about having the capacity to do something. And then the Americans were to read that to like, well, NATO, whatever you want to say, they were to read that today to know that in the past, the Russians as part of the Soviet Union were bluffing, they would be willing to put percentages today on what they might do. So I understand why they might be hiding the information still. There's just that as an element. Yeah, that's, uh, I know, um, Sean Maloney, who's a, uh, he, I think he teaches at, at, he has been teaching at Royal Military College um, here in Canada, um, but he's, and he teaches out West with strategic studies, I think in Edmonton. Um, he wrote a book outlining the, doing a really good detailed analysis of the evolution of, uh, of the American war plan. And I know he's currently working on something to try to do the same for the, the Soviet plan. Interesting. Uh, but I haven't, I haven't seen anything necessarily talking about what sources he has access to. Um, oh. But it's, uh, yeah, that's, that's one of those really, and then there was always a huge, I, I jump around because my brain sort of works that way. But um, it was always a keep in mind also when we talk about like, when we you start comparing the Soviet plan to the American plan, that the Americans for a very, very long time far outstripped quantity of nuclear weapons that the the soviets ever had um for like through the entire 1960s uh, 1950s certainly and parity started being achieved sort of closer to the into the 60s and certainly into the 70s um and the americans then adopted the policy of miniaturization so that they could fit more onto less and there's this whole thing that goes with that um but uh, yeah like the 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 soviet i would i would personally would love to see soviet strategy and policy um nuclear policy from the 50s to be able to do that comparison of the uh the american plan the american development and compare that to how the soviets did it um i would love to see that just because there was where the americans had thousands of nuclear bombers available the russians had hundreds um and until the until the until ICBM technology came in, where the the, the Soviets really poured their money into, um, there really was the 1950s was this massive imbalance in the ability to to deliver weapons. So, yeah, it's honestly the Cold War. I, you have your work cut out for you. I couldn't imagine having <laughs> that as a subject for my channel. Oh my, it's so there's too much to know because it encompasses no matter where you are in the world. There's a piece of the puzzle there. It's it, it really is fascinating. And you know you have espionage on one side. You have military talk, you know tactics. The differences of propaganda and education that come into it that are well, my parents would even talk about. You know the days of hiding under your desk because of <laughs> the bomb tests and all that yeah yeah it's uh it, it's a subject that i i love the subject and i i i mean we were just talking about tom clancy and i probably blamed in part tom clancy books for like you know really sort of like capturing my imagination with part of that and then there were video games that i used to play yeah, of course i'm mean, just leaving my house um video games that i used to play that like you know like flight simulators and stuff that yeah you know in the on my Commodore 64 in the 80s, like th those types of like video games and it's all, you know, yeah, like it just built this like picture in my mind. And then what I was, we were talking about before, like my, I really first got into a love of history with the the PTO, like the Pacific Theater 
was hugely interesting to me. The submarine campaigns. Um, yeah, no and one talks about the submarine campaigns. The, the unsung heroes for a reason. <laughs> it. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think you and I a little while ago were actually talking about uh, the one. The one Second World War movie I would love love to see made is uh, Dick O'Kane and the USS Tang. Um, and if you want to see Mush Morton and Wahoo from like, you know, before that with Dick O'Kane on board and then, but and do that as a dual movie, uh, one part one, part two, that is, that is a movie I would love to see. Um, whether that will ever happen, I, I don't think so, but I mean, I think there's, it's, un I guess it's cause it's un unglamorous going after merchant fleets and, and such, but they strangled Japan. I mean, they're they a did. huge part of the war effort but like they called them heroes so I, I figure if Das Boot can get as much traction True. as it has talking about the talking about like you know U-boats in yeah. the Atlantic there's absolutely no reason why there there couldn't be look, a, a treat an honest an honest treatment because I mean I think honesty is really important but I, I don't want to see a Pearl Harbor Ben Affleck version of USS Tang <laughs> Yeah, I, I want to see a I want to see a dust boot treatment of you know of what it, the Pacific. Now that you mentioned it, it's actually surprising that even on the other side of the coin, they haven't made anything involving Japanese midget submarines or the colossal size of the Japanese submarines. Because the Japanese had these monster submarines yeah. that, uh, well, they tried to shell the uh, the west coast of the United States. They they tried at one point to torpedo the San Francisco uh, Bridge, which. I, I can't remember what year it was in 47 they found the dud embedded in a bank beside one of the things that holds up the bridge so someone oh, wow. tried to take a shot i've never i've actually never heard that story that's uh yeah it, it was um a very limited operation happened really early on in the war and it was a kind of a catastrophe the japanese they, they tried to shell a few forts in the west and then they caused some some chaos nothing much but um, one commander tried to fire a torpedo from an extremely long range from, I don't know what the name of the island is, off of San Francisco. And he was told not to do it. Um, it turns out he had fired it because they, years after they had found the dud embedded into the bank near the bridge. If it would have hit one of the structural parts of the bridge, it might have done something. But I mean, it was a long shot to begin with. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, just a weird uh, fact. Uh, like... Japanese midget subs were the first to attack Pearl Harbor. Uh, they right. also attacked Sydney yeah. Harbor, um, which was kind of more of a funny episode I had to write for Kings and Generals because it turns out everybody in Australia was drunk during this event. So uh, it was chaotic to say the least. You know? But yeah. Welcome, welcome to Australia. I mean, that's... You know. Australia is a lot of fun, especially when it comes to the, the rivalry between the Americans and the Australians. Like uh, they technically had a little battle in Brisbane got really violent yeah. Yeah, that's a fun one i think band of not band of brothers uh, the pacific the pacific brother Take... to band of brothers did a piece yeah. on that but uh yeah so my my controversial take is that i know that everyone is supposed to love and adore band of brothers as being the, the pinnacle of uh of second world war i i am firmly on the side that the pacific is actually the better of the two series oh yes that is a hot take oh yeah yeah Hot take. Yep. The, no, the Pacific, the first time that I, cause I love, and I, don't get me wrong. I love Band of Brothers. I think it's a, it, it phenomenal. Um, 
and what it does, it does really, really well in terms of following that unit cohesion and you get to know the people, the people and you follow yeah. that through. And that's what it's really based around is, is the people and like, you know, Dick Winters as being like, you know, sort of the, the glue and, but it's everybody. The Pacific didn't do that. Um, they didn't and I think that. a lot of people, and they didn't. And that's, that's the important, I think that's the important part. Yeah. The Pacific is this fantastic show that really didn't want to do that. Instead, it's all about like sort of the, the visceral nature of yeah. combat. The the and I, I think of like Robert Leck, especially the the Robert Lecky episodes where it's just this the 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 impact and the the human the human toll. Yeah. Um, the last episode of the Pacific is just where they the war is over and they're home and it's trying to adjust to being home and that disconnect from society. Like I, I, I think they did a sledge story. Yeah. Yeah. And sledge. Absolutely. Like, you know, it's that those are both phenomenal books mm. um, for those who, uh, who may not have read them. Um, but I think it overall, I think it, it's a very different series. There's my dog here. Um, the very, very different series trying to do different things. Um, but for me, I, 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 I like what the Pacific did more than Band of Brothers, just because it's, it, it wasn't about, not necessarily the glory, not that Band of Brothers is about the glory of war, but it's, it's in, about, in the it's about, of, a, um, in the words of, I can't remember his name, there was a general who was asked a few, he was asked in their mid fifties, we hear so much about Europe, why does no one talk about what happened to Pacific? And he said, the Pacific was an ugly war. Yeah. And the Pacific series is showing an ugly war. There isn't necessarily glory. <laughs> yeah. There, there's a there's a scene um, where Malik Ramey's character on Okinawa, where he's plinking rocks. Into the head of a, yeah. Into the, the, the head of a, of, a, of a dead Japanese soldier. And I mean, it's been 20 years since I first saw that. And that still just sort of drifts through my brain. Sometimes yeah. it's just this really visceral, ugly reality that, that I think that war, that, that war is, and it's not that band of brothers doesn't do the same oh, thing in a different way. Like the, the, the Boston episode of band of brothers is, is phenomenal. It's, it's just yeah. such a, it's just such a good episode and like why we fight like the, where they, like, um, I can't think of the name of the, the, the camp that they liberate. Um, like that's just, that's another, yeah. I can't think of, I can't I, remember which camp is it, it is, camp? but that's just such remember. a, it's such a gut punch. Yeah. Um, but the Pacific, I think is just that much more gritty. It's that much more visceral. It's that much more. So I, I think something that's really ironic is the pacific series did not do very well as no it didn't any books in the early days uh, until eugene sledge's book actually until him no one wanted to talk about the pacific at all and it was not popularized uh the military made sure that they didn't talk about it actually it was intentional they glorified europe and to be honest if you if you just from a psychological point of view i don't I, my first degree is in neuroscience but if you took a veteran from Europe and you took a veteran from the Pacific, the chances the Pacific veteran is suffering from PTSD or anything significantly higher. Not to say that like, 
oh, they had it easy on no. the Western front. Like, yeah, of course they had it bad on the, on the Western front, but by far and large, the numbers show that it was just absolute brutality in the Pacific. It was actually more akin to the Eastern front with yeah. the brutalities between the, the Soviets and the Germans, which yeah. my God, that is another passion of mine is the Eastern front and oh, that is brutal. Yeah, I think Prit uh, Prit Patar has a has a new book coming out soon on uh, I can't on I think the campaign through Belarus, um, and I'm I'm yeah I'm I'm looking forward to that, but at the same time it's like oh that's it's going to be torture porn. Yeah, here come the here, here come the, here come the dreams and the you know the, the thoughts coming through again. But uh, no, it's um, anyways. There's 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 my hot take that uh, people. It's a hot uh, take for sure. People can certainly eviscerate me for, or or laud me for, like in the, the comments. That's uh, however however that works. And I am very much looking forward to Masters of the Air when that. Uh, yeah, adventure. I was about to say I was excited to hear that they're going to do this. Yeah, yeah, I think that's been in the works for at least ten or fifteen years. Oh wow, and really it's been, that long? Yeah, it's like and it there's been funding and there's like who's going to actually do it? And I think it, it's Apple. I think that's uh, that. Hmm. Uh, it's going to be on Apple Plus, I think. That they're the ones that finally picked it up for distribution, and they're they're, it's it's in production now. Cool. I know that. So, I actually I watch a show from Apple Plus. I don't know if you've heard of it for all mankind. I know it. Um, so I haven't I haven't seen it. Like that's TV, TV and I have a uh, a well, love hate relationship. I don't have cable. <laughs> I. I, for me, it's a time factor. Like it's really hard to find the time to sit and watch a, to sit and watch a series. Like I'm, I'm behind on my usual answer. If like people ask me like, have you seen X? It's no, I, I haven't. Yeah. And unless it was released 15 years ago when I had more time on my hands, but that's such is life. So true. And you know what, saying all that, I've kept you almost two hours. So uh, please, you've already done so, but please, can you like, let the audience know where they can find you. So I'm, my name's David. I'm the host of the Cold War channel. That's uh, on YouTube. Uh, so please, uh, if you're interested in Cold War topics, and we, when I say Cold War, we don't just look at, you know, the Berlin airlift to the Cuban Missile Crisis to, to the, the sort of the, the big hot spots. We're looking at some, we look at, we look at those certainly, but we're looking at the West Pop, West New Guinea dispute. We look at, you know, Congolese independence, um, we're all over the place. We're trying to do a fairly, some people will debate this, but we try to do a fairly comprehensive look at sort of the, the, the 45 year period that really was, you know, the, the Cold War. That's the second half of the 20th century. Um, and we, we look at, we obviously do end up looking a little bit at where things came from. So there's a second world war and even some earlier stuff than that. And we look sort of, we're doing stuff that go beyond that into the nineties and even into the two thousands. Um, but uh, if you're interested in the time period and of course you are come over to uh, the cold war channel and uh, check us out on YouTube. So please my tiny following go over to his much bigger channel and check out his work. Cause it's awesome. <laughs> and uh, again, thank you so much for doing this. I've been wanting this for a long time. It was awesome. Thank you. Pleasure was all mine. Thank you very much. Uh, this has been the Pacific War Channel, over and out.